What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And as always, a big thank you to everyone who keeps this show on the road, not least our patrons over on Patreon and our academics on the Bestseller Academy. Now, there may be many of you listening to us for the first time. If you want to support this podcast, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. There you have access to hundreds of hours of extra material. Uh, and you also have access to some of the, you know, the, the, the extended version of the interview that we're going to hear today with our very special guests. If you pop over to the Academy and as links in the show notes for that. It's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. You get me and Mr. D as your tutors and you get craft coaching and life coaching and a, a fantastic community of writers. So uh, pop over, links in the show notes, check it all out. Mr. D, very excited, very special interview today. Oh, very, very excited. I've got to say, last time you interviewed this special guest, I was absolutely gutted because he was one of my favourite authors mm. and I wasn't able to make it. But today... Oh, <laughs> we get to chat together. It's quite fun. It's, I, I do. I, I, I love it when we get to interview authors together. And um, so, tell us about today's special guest, Linwood Barkley. Well, we welcome Linwood back to the podcast. Uh, delighted to have him back. Uh, he was in episode three hundred six previously. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can check it out. But yeah, New York Times, Sunday Times, best-selling author, massive international smash, smash over twenty novels to his his name, uh, millions and millions of copies sold. Stephen King is a big, big fan, as you'll hear in, in the interview, uh, and um, he's got a new book. The Lie Maker and the the concept behind this is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, I, we'll let Linwood explain it. He does it so brilliantly. Um, so yeah, we have a great conversation. We talk about the new book, but we also talk about his incredible career, uh, what's inspired him. We've got some brilliant listener questions. That's going to go in the extended version for for patrons and academics as well. But yeah, just just we've just basically. Behind the scenes, folks, we've already interviewed Linwood and we are still buzzing from speaking to him, aren't we, Mr. D? It was just such a fun, such a fun chat. So uh, shall we jump in? Let's absolutely jump in, folks. So settle down. This is an absolute humdinger for all you aspiring bestsellers. Let's have a chat with Mr. Linwood Barkley. Linwood Barkley, welcome back to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm just peachy. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again. Our pleasure. And it's been, I, we're looking back, Linwood, it was around episode 300 when, when we last chatted with you. And uh, So what are you up to now? Well, I was going to say, we're up to, we're closing on 500. But so much has happened since, since you were last on the show. Um, tell us firstly a bit about the new book that, uh, that you've got coming out. So, yeah, so The Lion Maker, which it came out in May in North America, but it comes out in the UK on, uh, I think, August 31st. 
And very quickly, Linemaker is about a uh, rather uh, critically well-received but uh, commercially unsuccessful author. I don't know where that came from. And um, <laughs> early, early, earlier days. And and uh, he's uh, he's gotten a job writing for like trade magazine, which he'd rather be dead than have to do this. But he gets an interesting offer from, of all places, sort of witness protection people. And they take they have a little secret meeting and they say to him, look, we're really good at hiding people and getting them testified and hiding them and setting up a new life for them. We're very good at that, but we're not terribly creative. And so we're not very good at sort of, you know, imagining backstories for them. And we've read your books and we think you're brilliant at establishing character and, and you know, backstories for people and imagining this. What we want to do is hire you to write backstories for those people because they can't tell their own true tales, you know, and but they can say, oh, I used to be this and I used to be that. And you can prepare that for them. And we're willing to pay you very well for this. And he thinks, well, you know, it beats working for RV Monthly. And uh, so he accepts this, but he has another reason for wanting to accept it. And that is the fact that he can't believe that they didn't know this. But when he was just a kid, his own father left the family, didn't take them with them because the mother didn't even want to go, Took went into the witness protection program himself. So... Our fellow, our hero, Jack Gibbons, thinks maybe this, maybe if I work for these guys, I'll, uh, if I, even if they do his job, they will find a way to put me in touch with my dad and connect us. And uh, once you kind of reach that point to try to do it, he realizes that there's maybe a hell of a lot going on that his own father is maybe in tremendous jeopardy now. And uh, will he find him in time? That's our, that's our kind of setup for, for the linemaker. It's a, it's a terrific high concept idea, which and we expect nothing less from Elinwood, but this 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 idea, these writers, do they exist? Do these people exist or is this an invention? I have been asked that question. Someone said, Do does the witness protection program really have authors who write backstories? And I said, They do in this book. <laughs> I was hoping. I was hoping it, you weren't going to say it's actually based on a true story as well. In terms of you know, the, I, the inspiration, <laughs> it's possible they have this. I really don't know, but this is the joy of of being a fiction writer. He doesn't have to worry about footnotes. Um, <laughs> you know, this is this was the, the idea that I came up with, and um, so yeah. So who knows? But um, but that's what happens to Jack. I love it. Excellent. I'd love to delve into your mind for a quick second then with like how does how does an idea as brilliant as this and 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 as thought it feels like it's very thought through as well. How does something like that evolve? Does it come to you in a moment of inspiration and you get the hook? It came kind of gradually together. And I have a prop in my taking in my drawer here, which I'll show you in a moment. Um I had originally been thinking, first of all, I was thinking about, wouldn't it be really cool to do a TV series that was about a team that all they do is relocate witnesses? And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, what if one of the people who's on the team, not a writer, but one of them had a, had a parent who had gone into witness protection. And I started thinking about that almost like if it were a TV show or if it was a series of novels and so forth. And I started thinking about that. And then I thought, no, that, I mean, I don't know if that's, quite been done but it felt like it had been done to some degree and i thought what is there another way to come at it that's that narrows the focus and that's when i started thinking about what if you pulled a guy into that that kind of an operation 
and and a, a writer and said, you write these backstories. And and that's what I started thinking about. And then what kind of ended up dovetailing with that was, so one day I went on Twitter and I posted a picture of this wallet. This wallet is my father's wallet. And it has been in whatever desk I had at the time, has been in my desk drawer since my dad died when I was only 16 years old. And I've always kept it. I've always had it. There's, he's got his old driver's license in here. There's even, I think there's, there, let me check this out here. There's even um, a picture of me in here somewhere in this mess. We got a driver's license. It's joining the, the, the Masons. There's, there's a picture of me in his wallet. <laughs> and I always kept it. And so I tweeted this one day. And I, on sort of the 50th anniversary or around Father's Day of my dad's death, and I, and all I said was, here's my dad's wallet. It's been in my desk since he died 50 years ago. And it went nuts on Twitter. Stephen King retweeted it. And all these other people started responding to it. And I thought, and they said, I still have my mother's comb. I still have my dad's, you know, tools, his golf club, all this sort of stuff. And I thought it, it touched into something. And so this kind of became part of the novel. You know, when, when Jack's dad leaves him when he's a child, he gives him his wallet and says, well, you know, I don't need any of the ID or any of the stuff that's in here. And, you know, there's a bit of money in there. Go get yourself something. And so this became part of that book. And so I just kind of put it all together. And, and there you go. It's, it's called a book whatever <laughs> that's incredibly touching and and you obviously definitely you obviously hit some kind of sentiment there with uh, that connection with with fathers especially on father's day as well that's that's quite a beautiful tribute in some ways to to have your dad kind of in some way connected with with your work that must be a lovely a lovely thing to have written yeah i was actually i was lucky in the last year to be able to do that in another way which is i did a book that was a little different for me um called look both ways which was kind of a michael Crichtonish kind of thriller about self-driving autonomous cars that go insane yeah if you would there be so, if you would be <laughs> so kind as to open that up to the title page oh, yeah. you will see an illustration of a cadillac um or at least it oh, should yes. be this so yeah, that that cadillac that. illustration which is in the final version of the book is much bigger it runs across the whole two pages that is an illustration that my father did because he was a commercial artist. He worked in the advertising industry and in the fifties and so forth, all the car ads were illustrations and not photography. And he drew those cars and that particular car becomes rather important in that story. And, and, and my publisher in New York said, why don't we, why don't we put your dad's drawing on the title page? So that was kind of, uh, so that book's kind of special for me and that because of that. Fantastic. The, the dad, in the lie maker, though, not a good, not a good man necessarily. I mean, that he even says it himself: "Your dad's not a good person. Your dad killed people's son, and he's a killer." But it seems to be a search for connection and redemption. I mean, when you're writing about killers, are they ever beyond redemption? Are you always looking for that human story in the background? We're all, you know we're not all just good or all bad. I mean, I think there's, there's some bad and, and really good people. And there's, you know, even in the worst people, you can find something probably redeeming somewhere, or even if they live in their own sort of world with their own sense of, with their own kind of code, 
Hey, you read, you know, you read Richard Stark's Parker novels, you know, Parker's a thief, but there's something about him that you can find something in there that he has his own sense of honor about certain things. And I think sort of after having written this book, um, I, I sort of thought about Jack's dad in the way that I think about the Tom Hanks character in, um, uh, God, no, what's it, the title? That fabulous movie that, that where he plays a hitman. Right, Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition. Yeah. I know uh, he's not, a, he's a bad man. Mm. Mm. But we, do you, who, who can see that movie and not like that character, you know, and, and find something in him? And I think what you, what you really, you know, treasure is that connection that he has with his son. And, uh, and so I think that's a kind of an interesting, almost a perfect example of maybe what I'm trying to get at in the Lion Maker. I mean, we all, we all have to do something for a living, you know? (laughs) In the final author notes, Lynn, which you said at the end of the book, um, I did it all on my own. Okay. That was a lie if ever there was one. (laughs) So tell us a bit about the collaborative process of writing the Lion Maker. Yeah, I was going to say, what the, because of that title, everybody says, which politician is this book about? Um, <laughs> and, the, and the list is kind of long, the list, list of suspects. But the collaborative process, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've never done a book that didn't get better by working with good editors. And even though when they, you know, I think that the worst part of writing is the time between submitting your first draft to your editors and waiting to hear back. This is like waiting to hear for the test results back from the doctors, you know, because I think that as the author, a lot of times, not only do you not see what you did wrong, you don't even see what you did right. You know, the things that really worked and these kind of, cause they just happened, you know, and then so he says, Oh my God, this was anything. Oh, okay. That, I'm glad you like that. But then you get your notes back. And usually the process for me is when I get my notes back from my editors is, oh, what a bunch of crazy idiots they are. And then I get into it. I go, oh, yeah, I guess they were right about that or they were right about this. And, and you know, a second draft or whatever is an opportunity to really improve the book. And, you know, I know there's, there are authors out there who say, look, you don't change a word. This is the final product. This is the book. This is this is it. And, and, you know, and I, sometimes I'd like to be that author because I'd have so much less work to do, but, um, but those, those writers miss an opportunity to make their book better. And, and uh, books always get better as you, the more you go through it. So, I mean, I just finished doing pretty substantial rewrite on the book that would come out next year. And I thought with the draft that I handed in to my editor, to the publishers was pretty darn perfect. And then they had notes and then I went back into it and I started changing all kinds of stuff they didn't even ask for because I thought, oh, yeah, that's really crappy and or this needs fixing. And so I went back into it and I just changed a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm sure that you could keep doing that forever. But mm-hmm. um, I finally reached a limit where I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done. But, you know, really good editors are, you know, just you need them and you need that. And my agent as well. I mean, you need another set of eyes on things to uh to look at the stuff that you just missed this this one i mean as i said at the beginning we expect nothing less from you linwood and the you know the shout line for this is this is a twisty fast-paced thriller does the twist thing 
start to get to you because people are, it's hard enough to de deliver a twist when it's unexpected. But now people, we read Linwood Barclay because we're expecting a roller coaster ride, thrills, and twists and turns. Does it make it more difficult? I mean, how, did, you, did you get doubts? Do you have, you know, and do you use that perspective, that, that editorial eye to go, does this work? You know, so, so the twist thing, does it get to you? Well, I think that the twist, first of all, it doesn't get to me. And I think twists sometimes aren't even as twisty as they, they seem to be. Because mm -hmm. I think twists are sometimes just a bit of sleight of hand. It's just a question of making you look over here when you're really doing something over here. Or it's a question of timing. Like I've read novels by, you know, really talented writers who put a twist in the dead center of a chapter. And to me, that's like, don't do that. Like twists come, <laughs> twists come at the end of a chapter because then you have this bit of white space at the end of a chapter and a bit of more white space at the beginning of the next one with the next chapter heading. And I think that white space sends a signal. It's like something big just happened, you idiot. You know, pay attention. And and that's to me, that's always where the twist goes. It doesn't go in the middle. It doesn't just become lost in a huge body of text. So sometimes I think it's how you time it, how you present information that makes it seem more like a revelation than it is. It's But I like to try to end chapters with as much as I can with a sort of a bit of a twist. And I, and I think that goes back to that. I'm, you know, I'd like to say that my influences were Shakespeare and Hemingway and, you know, Chandler and all sorts of stuff. But for me, I think it was television. You know, I grew up with my, with square eyeballs, just addicted to all these TV shows when I was a kid. And to me, chapter breaks are commercial breaks. You know, you always ended that first act in an hour-long crime drama. Something big happened. And then you knew you had 60 or 90 seconds or whatever to go to the bathroom or get some more chips or whatever, and you would run back to find out what happened. And to me, that's, to me, when I'm writing a book, these chapter breaks are commercial breaks. You want to end them in such a way that that you've planted some sort of, or you've, you've presented some sort of twist that they have to, that you have to keep going. And, but... Some of the twists I know, some of them are smaller and they kind of just present themselves as I'm writing. And sometimes the the bigger ones, for example, I mean, there's a pretty significant one in The Lion Maker. And I knew that one before I'd written a single word of it. I knew that that was going, I knew that was going to happen. So I think the big ones are are really sort of structural issues that you you kind of need to have a handle on, I think, when you get started. I mean, the book that I wrote that I've that I've delivered for next year, it's not so much a twist, but it has something that happens on the very last page that's dramatic. And I didn't think of it until I got to the very last page. And then I thought, oh, that's so cool. Now I have to go back in the next draft and I have to seed it. I have to just put just a few little things here and there so that when we get to that last page, you go, Oh, yeah, of course, you know. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Now, you referenced your, your childhood there in TV, but we'd like to take you back to when you were working as a journalist, because in the last interview, you talked about how you kind of had, had a, a full-time career as a journalist before you became an author. And I'd love to find out a bit more about the defining moment when you decided to go for it as an author. Well, it was really sort of the opposite. I mean, when I was in my teens, and late teens, I mean, I was always writing as a kid. I started writing, you know, I would write my, what we call fan fiction today. I was writing 
novellas based on my favorite shows when I was 11, 12, 13 years old. And my dad taught me to type so that I could crank them out faster. And I would write 30, 40 page novellas based on The Man from Uncle or Mission Impossible and stuff like that. So as I, you know, so I started writing novels in my late teens and early 20s. I was writing actual novels and I was sending them out to publishers. And and thankfully, uh, they were sending them back. Um, you know, it's we, are, we can all be grateful that those books were rejected. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. And it was clear that at the age of 22, I was not going to be a best-selling novelist. So I thought, well, where can a guy get paid money to write every day? And so I applied for a job at a small newspaper in in rural Ontario in Canada, uh, Peterborough Examiner in Peterborough, Ontario. And and I think I got paid, I think I started at $125 a week, which actually back then was not a lot of money. Um, it was pretty bad. I think I was there for two years. And by the time I left, I think I got up to $200 a week. But I went, I got into newspapers because it was, I could get paid money to write every day. And, but it taught me so much, you know, and, and I think that a great thing for any writer to work at a newspaper is that it's like a crash course in the world. You know, you, you're covering the cops when you're covering an accident, you're covering city council, you're covering the board of education, you're interviewing some, you know, important person coming to town. So you just kind of start sucking up all this material that becomes just part of who you are. So that when you sit down to write a novel later, you think, well, you know, I know what happens or how, you know, government works. I know the politicians are all assholes or whatever. Like, you know, that's, well, it's all evident. And so uh, you're good to go. And so I was a reporter for two years there. I was at two years at another paper. And then in 1981, um, the paper I'd been at was put out of business. And I made the leap to go to the Toronto Star, which was the largest circulation newspaper in Canada. And I went there, went in for an interview with all my clippings and all that sort of stuff. And they said, well, we don't really need reporters. We, What we need desperately are uh, copy editors. Do you have a lot of editing experience? And I said, uh, sure. You know, which was a lie. And um, <laughs> so, so I got put on the desk very, very soon. I was working uh, nights on the, uh, on the city desk. And... Uh, I was good at it. I was really good editor, good headline writer, punchy, tight stuff. And I did, and I was an editor in various capacities, like department. I was a news, I was assistant city editor. I was news editor. I was head of the, like the life section. And then after 12 years, I got, um, and that was an opportunity to, to step out of that and write a column. And so I threat three times a week, allegedly a humor column. And I would say allegedly, because if you know, if you read it, you don't get it. It's like, what the hell was that? Um, <laughs> so, and it was writing the columns that eventually led me back to doing to, to doing what I always wanted to do when I was a teenager, which was write novels. I mean, I did a couple. I did like, I did three humor books and a memoir that were only published in Canada, and then I had an idea for a novel, which became a book called Bad Move, and I started writing novels when I could find the time. And I wrote five novels while I was still writing three columns a week for the paper. But that fifth book was a book called No Time for Goodbye. And that one just went supernova. And that's when I quit newspapers. And that was like 2006. So, but what newspapers taught me 
<clears throat> was a couple of things, aside from just, you know, soaking up information. One was the importance of deadlines that, you know, you don't, if you, if you call a city editor and you say, you know, the muse just didn't strike me today and I really can't do my column because I just wasn't feeling it, you know, that would be the end of you, you know, you'd be gone. So I learned that to produce, I learned the importance of deadlines and I learned not to be precious about everything, you know, and you know, all this bullshit about writer's block. I mean, God, good luck working on a newspaper if you have writer's block uh, and you have to produce daily. So newspapers taught me a work ethic. And um, so that's a rather long-winded answer to whatever it was you asked me 30 minutes ago. That's, that's great. Thanks, Lewood. Going back to that young guy who was writing but somehow had the self-awareness that I certainly didn't have when I was in my sort of late teens, early 20s, the self-awareness that I'm not good enough at this yet. Uh, was, was that a matter of sort of putting the dream on pause until you learned the skill set? Well, it was it wasn't totally self awareness. The rejection letters were instructive. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were they were very they were sort of they the awareness dawned on me from those letters that that was not going to happen, and I was rejected by the best. You know, and uh, so um, so very much this whole notion of wanting to become you know, a, a mystery novelist, a crime novelist. I mean, my God, when I was, when I was my late teens and early twenties was, was the Lou Archer creator, Ross McDonald, who it's a long story. I got, I got to know personally. Um, and, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be, I wanted to be Ross McDonald, you know, more than anything. And it was, it just was evident that it was not certainly not going to happen when I was 22. And so all of these various writing or editing jobs or newspaper jobs, everything sort of went on pause. And when I was an editor at the Star, and for a lot of those years, I was, you know, working on news desk shifts and so forth and shifts that started at, you know, because we were a, a multi-edition daily and I'd come in with some shifts started at 11 at night to finish at six in the morning. Others started at 6 a.m. and went to one in the afternoon. Others were afternoons. It was all, and you're just, you know, life just wipes you out. And and doing those kinds of shifts, although they can be pretty entertaining and you know interesting, it's an interesting job. And so, working in the in the biggest newsroom of the country, so the writing just was completely. I didn't even think about it for a long time. I didn't start really thinking about it again until I got my column writing gig, and then I thought. First of all, I was able to manage my own time because if I had three great ideas for a column, I would write them all in one day. Office didn't have to know. And then I'd spend the next two days working on a novel. And, and so it was finally getting the gig where I was writing every day. And now I sort of the machinery was getting oiled. And, you know, if you're producing, you're producing. That's when it, 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 I thought, I think it's time that I can go back to trying to do what I always wanted to do. Brilliant. And at that time, was there somebody very influential that you can pinpoint who really encouraged you to do that or somebody that that pushed you to go for it? Well, not at that time, but when I was younger, there were there were two significant people for me. Um, the first was uh, uh, probably not as well known now, but before there was Margaret Atwood, there was Margaret Lawrence. 
And Margaret Lawrence is one of Canada's most revered literary writers going way back. And, you know, they, one movie was made out of her books, Just of God, that Paul Newman made it, uh, that uh, was one of hers. But she was, um, she became a writer in residence for a semester at Trent University that I attended. And I was writing all these, you know, the fan fiction type things and so forth. And I thought, wow, here's somebody who gets paid money to write books. I'm going to, I want to go see her. And I hadn't read anything but hers, but a short story. So I went to see her and she became a very good friend oh, for, for many years and through my newspaper, you know, career and so forth. And she read the manuscripts that I was writing, the books I was writing and was really encouraged. So she said, here was a person who was a successful novelist who had enough, took enough interest in me to say, yeah, you know, you've, you've got something. And, and then the other was, was we talking about Ross McDonald, whose real name was Kenneth Miller and had written the highly regarded Lou Archer novels at the time was kind of considered to be the heir to the throne that had first been occupied by Dashiell Hammett and then Raymond Chandler. And then there was Ross McDonald. So I decided in my fourth year at university, I pitched to my English professor doing a thesis on the private detective as an iconic character in literature, but decided to make much of my focus, the Lou Archer novels by Ross MacDonald. And so I sent a letter to Alfred Knopf Publishing, you know, care of to, and to Kenneth Miller, thought, I'm just going to write him a letter. I was in, this would be my third, fourth year in university. Oh, I must have been fourth. And said, um, I'm going to do a thesis on your books. And can you point to me and any sort of things that might've been written about you that I don't know about? And lo and behold, sometime later, I, he replied. I got a personal letter back from him. And then I did this really awful thing. I wrote him back and said, I've written this novel. Can I send it to you? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I realized now what an immense imposition that was. But, you know, back then there was no... Twitter and email, all sorts of stuff. So you were bombarded with people asking you to do this every day. And he wrote back and he said, sure. And I think part of it was he, although he was based in California, he grew up in the area where I was living. And so I sent it to him, this novel I had written called The Open Eye. And he read it and he wrote back a long letter and he was very encouraging things. He said he thought it needed a subplot and so forth and so on. And this became the beginning of a very long correspondence that he and I had back and forth. And that was meant everything to me. And, and lo and behold, he gets, I get an, a letter from him one day. He said, my wife, the novelist Margaret Miller, and I are coming to Peterborough, Ontario, because Margaret has family there. And we're going to visit. And maybe you'd like to have dinner. Now, any other kid in Canada, this would be like finding out that, you know, Wayne Gretzky was going to drop by, you know, that I could give a shit if Wayne Gretzky came by. But anyway, so, so I get a call at this time. I was running our cottage resort and trailer park that we had, and which I was basically running because my dad had died. And I think I had just finished burying fish guts from the fisherman's daily catch and the, and the phone in our trailer rang and it's Kenneth Miller saying, do you, we're here. Do you want to come on over and have dinner? I was like, so uh, it was really actually a funny side story to this. So I had, I was over at a friend's house one time. And he had a copy of Gallery Magazine, which was kind of a Playboy knockoff skin magazine <laughs> with all sorts of porn in it and so forth. And there was an actual serious interview 
in this magazine with Ross McDonald about his novels and the themes and so forth. And I said to my friend, Hey, can I, can I keep this magazine? He was like, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> and of course he wanted. And, uh, and so I had told him that I had this and he said, I've never seen it. Could you bring it? So when he comes out and we meet on the, uh, uh, you know, on the driveway of this house and I sort of had in the plane run wrapper, I had the magazine with this, with this, and he was like, Oh, great. He says, I better put this away, you know. So. <laughs> but I, I gave him a tour all around Trent University, and I had dinner with him and his wife that night. And my head still spins that it happened, you know. But he was so encouraging to me, and and took a lot of time and interest. And he, I had a copy of his novel Sleeping Beauty, the hardcover, and I brought it with him and asked him to sign it. And he wrote in it. So we're on my shelf here. For, for Linwood, who will, I hope, someday outright me. Whoa. Wow. July, what was it? June 30th, or May 30th, 1976. So he was, he was immensely encouraging. So here you've got two really, you know, established writers who took that kind of time to deal with basically a kid. Mm-hmm. And so that meant a lot to me. And it wasn't it wasn't a long it was a long time before it kind of paid off i didn't have my the first novel i did i think came out when i was 48 um somewhere in there i'd done some other books and and so forth but the first novel was was in my late 40s so you know for for all those people who say well you you know they get discouraged they say oh don't worry you know and like in 30 years you'll be an overnight success um (laughs) and so that could be but it's it's like you just keep plugging away but they were they were the mentors. They were the ones who. So once I finally got back to finding the time to write novels, when I was at the Toronto Star and I was doing the columns, you know, they were sort of in the back of my head. Wow. That's wonderful. That is and wonderful. The, ult- the ultimate get out of jail card if you ever get caught reading porno mags by your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I've been interviewed in it. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about that that big overnight success. I I worked in. Orion's sales department when No Time for Goodbye was was published. I had the great pleasure of selling that. And uh, tell us tell us about that because you had written you, you had books published before. Was there something different about this one? Was there something that was there something where you thought this could be the one? Well, you know, it's like it's a really good question. Like here's the here's the, here just be, this was the well, first of all, it rather helped that it got picked as a Richard and Judy book. That book came out in hardcover. That book came out in hardcover in, I think, January of 2008. And, you know, got some nice reviews, blah, blah, blah. And then, for whatever reason, Richard and Judy picked that book. And uh, and it became instantly the sort of fastest-selling Richard and Judy pick ever. Yeah even before people really knew what it was. And and so, you know, I said, I remember I said to my editor, I said, why do you think it was? And he said, well, I said, people like trees. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's trees on the cover. Maybe people like trees. And so they bought it. You know, that was the best that we could come up with. And, and uh, so it caught us all by surprise. That book was selling... Um, I don't know. I forget the number now. It was selling like like 
it was either 5,000 copies a day or 5,000 copies a week or something. It was kind of, you know, it was like what Richard Osmond sells in an afternoon. And, and, uh, but it was just, it was, it went insane. The week before it was a Richard and Judy pick, it sold in all of the UK 11 copies. And you hear that siren? Something's going by anyway. Anyway, it's um, I'm right. I'm looking out at the street. Maybe somebody will get murdered and be just perfect. Um, so, so it was, I mean, and it was very weird to be here in, in Canada while it was happening somewhere else. You know, I mean, I would hear, I heard from an old friend who I worked with like in the seventies who was living in London. He goes down in the tube and there's this immense poster for no time for goodbye. And it says, Linwood Barkley, but how many of those could there be? And, and, uh, and so it was surreal. It was really surreal. And, but I'm certainly grateful that Richard and Judy picked it because it was a great, it was like getting launched out of the canon. I mean, I have never had a book since in the UK that did that well, but they've all done well since, you know, and that, that got me up there. And it's always, and, you know, a lot of times you get a, if you have a Richard, Judy and Pick or you have a huge bestseller, it's like, well, that's great, but what can you do next? And there's this kind of, um, you know, you, this panic, this paralysis of like, well, how can I follow that? Well, I'd already written the book that would come after this before it was a hit. And there were still four sort of comic thrillers that had preceded it. People thought in the UK, people thought this was my first novel, but it was in fact yeah. the fifth. It's the fifth book. Yeah. Um, so it was, I mean, and I, and I, probably would still be writing columns at the Toronto star today, all these years later, if it hadn't been for this breakout book. Brilliant stuff. Now, apart from your latest book, the lime Acre, which is always, we're always told the, the most favorite, the, the favorite book of every author is the one they've just written. But apart from that one of all the books that you've written inward, what's your personal favorite and why? I think it's trust your eyes. I think that's my own favorite. I like it for a couple of reasons. One is it's it's a kind of high concept book. It's about um, a guy who's sort of either borderline autistic or schizophrenic, who's obsessed with maps, who spends every, who's always loved maps and now has the ability because of a site like Google Street View to travel the world virtually. And he sits all day at his computer and wanders through all the cities of the world and looking at all these maps and thinks that he sees a murder in a window that would have been captured by the Google Street View car maybe months ago or something in a, in, in a higher level window in, uh, in lower Manhattan. It's a kind of updated rear window in a way. And and the book is also that character is to some degree informed by my own brother who actually passed away last year, but had dealt with schizophrenia for most of his life. And while not obsessed with maps, was obsessed with languages and studied many different ones, invented his own and so forth. And so, so, so trust your eyes. I think it's, it's, it's the best, I think it's one of the best concepts for a novel I ever had. And it also is a little more personal. And uh, almost every book I have written is I dedicate to my wife, Nita, but that one I dedicated to my brother. And, uh, and I think it's one of the best things I've ever done. There's been two attempts to make it. They, one attempt to make it into a movie. There was another attempt to make it into a limited series. And who knows, maybe somebody will come back to it someday. But I think it's my favorite. 
It's really funny too when people say, and you know, as an author, you have all your own your own favorite books that you like and ones that you're, you're not as happy with. And I've had people come up and say, I won't say which book, but they'll say, oh my God, this particular book, that's my favorite. I just love that book so much. And I think, I'm so unhappy with that book. I didn't like it at all. It's just about, and I think, is it rude to argue with them <laughs> and say, so I know I'm sorry, you might like it, but you're wrong. <laughs> The other thing is you, you'll you'll associate that the writing of that particular book with a with a time in your life as well. You know, you might have been ill. You might have had some sort of you know trials and tribulations that you're going through too. But that's, for, an, that, that's an interesting point because you know a book that I always remember with great fondness, in some way or as personal as um, Roddy Doyle's novel Patty Clark. Ha 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 ha. ha. Yeah. I read that while I was sitting in a hospital room next to my uh, my aunt in Connecticut while she was dying. And I just stayed there all day and I just read that book. So um, that book is, first of all, it's a great book, but it's it has a significance that no author could ever anticipate that a yeah. book will affect you that way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned as well previously about this idea of not being precious when you're writing. How has that helped you in terms of the the speed at which you write, this idea of, of just kind of pushing through things. Because a lot of authors that we have, that we coach and that we chat with, this is the biggest thing they get stuck on. They get so precious about their work and it really seems to stop them in their tracks. What advice would you have for them? You know, push forward. I mean, I think Harlan Coben talked about this one time because I don't want to rip off. It's enough that I would rip off his plots. You know, I don't want to profit this advice. <laughs> just, I just don't. Um, he said, it just gets something on the screen or on that page because you can always fix it. It doesn't have to be, it hasn't, doesn't have to come out of your head perfect the first time. But if you can get something out there and put something down, you can go back, you can massage it, you can change it, you can tweak it, you can delete this part, put in something else. So it's, it's trying not to get paralyzed by thinking that I can't write a single word until it's completely perfect. You know, start hacking away at it. And, and and as I say, I think a lot of that goes back to having worked in newspapers where you don't have neither the, the time nor the luxury to be precious about what you're doing. Um, but for me, I'm a kind of meat and potatoes writer anyway. I'm not, you know, like an Ian McEwen or, or somebody like that who's, who's, who thankfully spends so much time on a single paragraph and crafting it and making every word matter in a certain way. I'm kind of more like, let's tell this story. Let's get this thing going. Let's get it out there. And and a lot of times first drafts are like, you know, building the house. And second drafts are going back in and, and doing the wallpaper and putting the furniture in and so forth. But you've got the structure. You've got the foundation. You've got all that. But then you can go back in and and figure out where to hang the paintings and so forth. Now, a lot of authors um, have an as uh, aspiration of getting, you know, famous authors and quotes on their books and uh, and looking at, at some of the great quotes that you've had. I mean, you've had friend of the podcast, the mighty, amazing Joe Hill, and then some chance uh, not to be outdone by his son, a bloke called Stephen King, who's got a quote on the front of the book there. When when you hear about these quotes, do they come typically? Do they come from the publishers and they come out of the blue, or do sometimes the quotes come through? Literally, like you said before, sending a book to one of your one of your contacts, one of your favorite authors, and then a, a quote comes back. Well, this the Stephen King one um, that kind of was came in a sort of very roundabout way. First of all, I had heard 
from this is going back quite a few years, 10 years at least, I think. I heard my editor at the time was also Joe Hill's editor, although I didn't know that. And she wrote me one time and said um, that her author, Joe Hill, had really enjoyed uh, this book of mine, and he'd had it recommended to him by his father. And I looked at that email, and I thought, wait a minute. I Joe, I know that Joe Hill is not really Joe. And I and so that came together. And then not long after that, there, for a while there, Stephen King had a column in Entertainment Weekly, and he would write about things that he'd read or heard or seen that he really liked. And he mentioned, I think it was possibly The Accident or Never Look Away, that was one of the best thrillers he'd read that summer. And then I was just like, you know. Um, so because he had ex had expressed uh, a like for that book, I did not know that my publishers had sent to him uh, a copy of Trust Your Eyes. And he read it and gave us for that book this just over-the-top, amazing blurb for Trust Your Eyes, which he had just loved. Um, a sort of funny footnote to all that. In, in Trust Your Eyes, which I talked about, um, this sort of Google Street View kind of site that our map-obsessed guy uses, I didn't want to call it that because I was going to go into their headquarters and kill people, you know. And so I invented a website that was similar and I called it World 360. So in Stephen King's novel, Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining, the true not, this band of very evil characters are trying to find somebody. And instead of using Google, they decide to use World 360. <laughs> <laughs> Love so. So what? World 360 exists now in the same universe as The Shining. So anyway, wow. um, and not long after that, um, uh, Mr. King and Owen, his son Owen, were in Toronto at a Penn event. And I, uh, we support Penn, we were invited to this reception. And so that's when I first met him. He was standing in front of me with his back to me and the organizer said, Stephen, here's someone you might want to meet. And he turned around and said, hi, I'm Lewis Barclay. And he goes, oh, my God, it's you. And he, <laughs> threw, his, he threw his arms around me. And uh, so I had a, a we had a love chat. And I have um, I've met him one other time since. And we are back and forth quite a bit, sometimes in emails. And he follows me on Twitter. And occasionally, you know, some tweet of mine, like the one about this wallet, he'll retweet and it goes nuts. Um, and I did do an, I did do a, during the festival for Bloody Scotland, I interviewed him for a Zoom thing for an hour, which uh, veered slightly off topic at one point and got into a whole thing about toilet humor. And I really think that that's what the people had signed up for was the, the my story <laughs> about an epically long turd and his story about somebody who got stuck in the bathroom on an airplane. And we had a lovely time. We really did. <laughs> That sounds like a whole different universe completely. <laughs> if you guys ever co-author a book, I want to read it. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. He was at, he was asked one time about three years ago. He was asked three or four years ago. He was asked in an interview if he'd ever co-wrote write anymore, and he listed four writers. I think that he would be you know if it came up, he would mind writing a book with. And uh, uh, one of them was Michael Robotham. One of them was Tara uh, French. One of them was me. Wow. And I wrote, so I sent him a note. I said, just let me know, you know, that happened. 
Well, I'll tell you what, we'll we'll uh, we'll start a campaign there on the podcast for yeah, you, Linwood, and, 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 now. Uh, and if it, if it happens as a result of that, we promise that the two of you can be the, we can we can do the first interview with the with the co-authored book. That, that seems that seems fair. Should we do that? Okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> so we'll see what we can do. We'll get in touch with Joe and have a chat. <laughs> Joe's a great guy too. I've actually met He's Joe for fun. the first time. Joe and I have been back and forth. Well, but I actually, last time we went to London in uh, October and Lo, and Joe happened to be over at that point. So Joe came into the city and he and I had um, breakfast together. And I remember sending him a note from the hotel. I was saying, oh my God, I said, Guillermo del Toro is staying at our hotel. He's seen having breakfast like four tables or, and he said, oh, cool. I know him. I'll come by after. So <laughs> he knows. <laughs> yeah. Joe's brilliant. We've had so much fun with him on the podcast as well. So lovely guy. He's brilliant. So much really fun. Is. So, Linwood, um, just to finish off, we have to ask this question. As someone who's had incredible success with their career and lots of authors listening, you know, dreaming of one day they might they might kind of be able to emulate what you've achieved. What what bit of one piece of writing advice uh, would you pass on to them? Either something that you've received yourself that you've lived by or something that you've learned through the process? Well, I think mine's not similar from a lot of others. I think that if you... There's a couple of things. I think if you want to be a writer, you have to be a reader and you need to read a lot and, and read a lot of different kinds of things. Cause I think you can learn more from that than just about anything. I mean, here's some people say, Oh yeah, I want to be a writer, but I don't have time to read. That's like saying, well, I want to be a chef, but I don't like to go out to restaurants much. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And I guess the second is you just need a, you need a thick skin and you need to persevere because it can take, a really long time. And I guess the last thing would be is that when you give your book to your mom or your sister or your wife to read and they tell you it's brilliant, pay no attention to that because what else <laughs> What else can they say? You know, you go say, well, my mom read this and she thought it was really good. Well, that means nothing. Um, so, you know, if those are the people that you're getting to read it and they all love it, then you need to probably give it to some other people too. Limwood, I know we're running out of time. You've got a dash, but is that Jerry Anderson's supercar on the shelf behind you? It is. Tell good us about good that. spot. I'm gonna, I'll have to, <laughs> I might be able to get. I don't know if I can reach it with the core with the thing. I could bring it forward. Okay. I'm don't break just, it. Don't break it. It's a collectible. No, no, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to just. I'm going to just disconnect. Okay. I've been looking at it all through the interview. It's been there all the way through. Is that that really looks like Jerry Anderson's supercar? He's, he's bringing it forward. Yeah. He's just plugging in again, folks. This is, this is great listening for the podcast listeners. <laughs> there we go. He's back. <laughs> is, your, is your podcast all audio or is it video? There is video. There will, on, we'll put it on YouTube, yeah. So when I was a little kid, uh, I loved all those Jerry Anderson shows, which were shown in Canada. But the by the time I got to Thunderbirds and stuff, I was kind of getting older and didn't care. So I was an older guy. So I liked the early stuff like Supercar and Firebell XL5 and Stingray. Yeah. I just adored those. And my dad, not only a, a commercial artist, but also a very talented model maker, he would he made me models of these things from scratch. But Whoa. I have collected over the years, I have a shelf up here with my favorite is supercars, my favorite science fiction designed thing ever. Coming in second is probably the Sea View and the Flying Sub from Voice to the Bottom of the Sea, which I have models of up here too. But supercar, I've always loved. But anyway, there is a guy named i can't even think of his name i'm going to go blank so uh uh this is a scratch built from you know model of supercar 
This is made by a fellow named Martin Martin. Bauer. It was a commission. I had a a commission piece. Martin Bauer made uh, for the worked in the film industry. He made the ships for the movie Alien. Uh, He made the ships that were used for Space 1999, (gasps) um, uh, Outland. He did the ones, the ships for Outland. So he worked in the film industry. He's now much older guy. He's retired. He he lives in England. And um, I had seen online that he had put one of these up on, he had made one of these and put it up on eBay. And I was bidding for it frantically. And in the last five seconds, lost it. Oh, and I was so depressed about it. And my son, who is also an astonishing model maker and does it professionally, he said, Dad, why don't we just ask him and we'll just pay the full freight and we'll commission it. And so he arranged it. He set it all up and and uh, and it took a year. He started it in September of 19, I think. And then the pandemic hit and he couldn't get parts and all that stuff. And it came a year later. And shifted all the way from England. Nothing was broken. It was perfect. And the only thing we asked was at the end, we'd already commissioned it. And then we said, hey, can we? Can you put Mike Mercury in the cockpit? Can you build him? And he added that in. So I know it's completely, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever had done and bought. But I just love it. And it's just, and it weighs a ton. Like, it's very heavy. And the wings retract, which is kind of cool. I don't know. Anyway, so it's beautiful. But it's the whole thing. It's gorgeous. all handmade, and it's it's just absolutely gorgeous. And uh, so it has a, and I'm so impressed that you spotted it. You must be, it must be very old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I am. No, I'm. A, I, I'm a. You know, I I grew up watching a lot of those Jerry Anderson shows too. And my and my uncle's partner was a big Jerry Anderson fan. And when he passed away, I did. Uh, I I would auction off some of his stuff for charity. Oh yeah. And uh, so I became very familiar through it, with it through that as well. Yeah, over on my oh, shelf here, which you can't quite see. I don't know if you can see, but you probably can't spot them. But over on those shelves there are wood models of Fireball XL5 and wow. Stingray and actually commercially made models of it. And a whole bunch of, you know, anybody who's ever made any kind of commercial model of supercars, even little ones like this, I've bought them all. I, just, I don't know. And yet, so sometimes because it's, I just love the show, love this so much, I'll haul up my DVD collection to watch an episode. And I think, God, this is really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> But I love the models. You know, yeah. it's like it's like the design is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. The design is beautiful. Reg Hill designed it. You know, like 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 I loved. I voiced a lot on the sea, the sea view, and and the mm. flying sub. You can maybe even see there was a flying sub way up there on top of a shelf, right above my head. Right, there was a flying yes. sub. Um, Fantastic. I love those models, and so I've had that one. My son built for me out of out of a kit because he's a good model builder. And so I think oh, I should watch one of the episodes, and I'll call one up on DVD, and I think this is really the stupidest show ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, Linwood? We've 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 interviewed some pretty amazing people, present company included, people like Michael Conley, Brian Cranston. I don't think I've ever seen Mark as excited as the moment that you got that super. <laughs> he's literally Brilliant. people not seeing us on video. He's literally <laughs> wet himself. <laughs> well, you know who pretty much wet himself was um when Mark Billingham was in Toronto. He came up to the study here and saw that and he just about lost his mind. <laughs> and and then he took him downstairs where I have a huge model railway. And then whatever mind of this was left also exploded. <laughs> Spits of Mark Billingham like scattered around now. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Listen, Linwood, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being so generous with your time today. And we are so grateful. It's lovely to have you back. And and 
it sounds like we're going to have that third interview set up with you and Stephen. We'll get that sorted. Sure, this yeah, is yeah, for the call. Absolutely. Yeah. It's brilliant. But thank you again <laughs> for the incredible success you've had as an author, for the millions of books you've sold, but more importantly, the multi-millions of hours of enjoyment you've given readers around the world. So on behalf of everyone listening and ourselves, thank you for an incredible career. May it continue and blossom further with many more supercar models as well. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks so Brilliant. much, guys. Have a great Thanks, day. Lim. Take care. Take Bye-bye. care. All the best. Bye-bye. Well, folks, if you just listened to the uh, version of the podcast that isn't the extended, we have got very special extended edition of this podcast you, where we chatted with Linwood and asked him some really, really amazing questions. Some listener questions about plotting and red herrings and how he does it. If you ever read any of his books, you know he is an absolute master at this. Um, also, something about the Zach Walker novels as well and writing comedy. And we also asked about outlining and how he goes about his process of outlining. And finally, the most important thing is Linwood gave us his three most important tips for all aspiring writers. So folks, if you would like to listen to the extend and also support this podcast, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support, sign up as a patron today and you will get access to the full in-depth interview. So Mr. Stay, it's been such a long interview and such a brilliant episode this week that we're gonna leave wins and social media to next week, aren't we? Yes, normal service will be resumed next week. But if you've enjoyed this, please subscribe, give us a rating, give us a review. Always makes us uh, more visible uh, to the to those algorithms. Big thank you to our editors, Dave and JD. Uh, on social media, if you've enjoyed this, let us know. Uh, Facebook, we're Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram and Meta, we are at Bestseller XP threads. That is, we're on threads too. I mean, not that I really go on there much, but you know, it's, uh, <laughs> we are there. We are there. So come and say hello. Brilliant stuff. And you may have heard Mr. Linwood Barkley mention those three immortal words during the interview, which was right every day. Yeah. And, if you're, right? and so if you're not doing that yet, we've got the perfect, perfect uh, way to get started on that. And that's the 200 word challenge. So if, if you're new to the podcast or it's something you're thinking about signing up to, just do it now. If you're inspired by what Linwood talked about, go to 200wordchallenge.com, sign up and try and write 200 words a day for seven days. And you may very well start the writing habit of a lifetime. And also folks, if you'd like to join the bestseller experiment newsletter as well and get weekly updates about our latest episodes and lots of exclusive information, pop along to the website bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the newsletter tab. So Mr. Say, thank you so much for joining us again. This is just absolutely been great, brilliant, brilliant. And uh, for everyone out there, we hope that you've been really inspired by this episode. And uh, do remember to send us in your wins, no matter how big or small. And Mark, we better get get busy because we've got a campaign about a Stephen King and a Linwood Barclay uh, co-authored <laughs> novel to get on with. So, begins uh, today. It today. begins today, folks. You heard it here first. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. All right, so it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Right, uh, folks, now, if you're still listening at the end of the podcast, uh, we're recording this quite a while after our original interview with Linwood um, because we got an amazing follow-up email from his publicist uh, who, and he said, um, Linwood wanted me to pass on the below. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this out to you now. Uh, Linwood says, that moment when I heard a siren and joked that maybe there was a murder out front, the second I got off the Zoom, my wife said I wasn't going to believe what happened. Some guy was wandering down the sidewalk, 
a cop car came along. Cops jumped out and tackled him on our front lawn directly below the window where I was sitting. Big struggle. Two cops to hold him down. They cuffed him. Another cop car showed up and they put him in one and took him away, apparently, to the nearby psychiatric facility. My wife, Neetha, said they were fairly respectful with him, didn't treat him overly roughly, but for whatever reason, he had to be subdued. Neetha watched it all from our front step and true to form, when the cops were done, because it's, swear word here, so fucking hot, she offered them a refreshing beverage. They declined. I mean, all that was going on while we were interviewing him, Mr. D. What the what? <laughs> I just, when we saw this email, I just couldn't believe it. And and for me, it's like it couldn't have happened to a, a thriller writer, and it did. And I just thought, wow, this is absolutely bonkers. Yeah. So if you if you if you rewind, <laughs> you go back. You can actually see it actually on YouTube where we've got the interview. Uh, with Linwood, you can see him kind of get out of his chair and he's like leaning and he's trying to crane to see what's going on. And honestly, when we were chatting with him, we just thought, oh, you know, just something happening outside. But yeah, apparently it all started to become very CSI in the suburbs of uh, <laughs> some suburb in Ontario. I mean, Mark, you know what? They say truth is stranger than fiction. All right. Well, I mean, that's just, it's insane. Just absolutely insane. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for sharing that. We're, the publicist, we, we checked in with Linwood and, um, you know, he was fine with us sharing that. So, uh, and uh, I believe, um, I'm just checking on Twitter, actually, uh, Linwood and Neetha just celebrated their 46th wedding anniversary wow. as well. So huge congratulations to Linwood and Neetha. That is uh, phenomenal. So what a lovely note to end on. Oh, that's absent. And we hope that your wedding anniversary day was a little less exciting <laughs> than what was happening whilst we were, <laughs> we were interviewing you. But a massive thank you again to Linwood and also for sharing uh, that story with us. Absolutely brilliant. That's definitely a bestseller experiment first. Hopefully not to be repeated. 